0: by the rivers of Babylon and can selfies kill you and it's harvest time this is the deep end this is the bible and this is the deep end podcast where we talk about the bible in modern day language thank you for joining us this is the deep end welcome in everybody watching us live on youtube facebook 12 noon on wednesdays our typical time together watching live or listening after the live recording, which we're so glad that you do that as well. So whether you listen or watch, I am so thrilled that you have tuned in to this edition of the Deep End Podcast. Going through the book of Revelation, I'm having the time of my life studying this book. I hope you are too. I just love what it's teaching me, and it's going to really start to teach you some stuff about your world today Uh, Hopefully, open your eyes, hopefully, challenge you, hopefully, draw you ultimately closer to Jesus. My name is Tim. I'm the host of The Deep End, and uh, it's just me and you today. Actually, well, me and you and the fabulous media team over here. Hello. Hello, Michael. And uh, over there, this is a new guy in the corner over there. His name is Matt. He is our audio engineer. And uh, over here off camera, we have Nicole uh, and and Kelly uh, Batello. She was in that shot, but over here, you can't see her. Nicole, she's the uh, strong, Invisible type, uh, so we're gonna get into the de- we're gonna get into the deep end talk about Revelation. But right now, we're gonna get into deep end news. And I have found some news that is gonna shock some of yous. Okay, so some Ooh. of you are watching us, yeah, by social media. This is very apropos social media news. I just want to let you know. I'm here to warn you. I'm here to warn you. I am here because I care. I care for you and your health. And the news is out. the The, the, the statistics are coming out. And watch out because selfies can kill you. Yes, selfies can kill you. I'm not just killing you by, you know, uh, you just getting so in love with yourself that you end up, you know, not being able to live with yourself without marrying yourself. And so you kill yourself. I don't know whatever happens there, but here's the deal. Uh, there's a news article, a bunch of news articles coming out recently that suggest that selfies can actually cause damage this is from Alternate Radio 103.7 and the DFW Triangle. Okay. It says, dermatologist warns selfies can cause more damage than smoking, drinking, and sun exposure. If you're the type of person that likes to take 1,000 selfies in order to snag the perfect shot, you might want to ease back a little bit. A term- dermatologist has warned that selfies can wind up causing just as much, if not more damage to the skin than smoking, drinking, and too much exposure to the sun. Wow. Wow. Uh, the doctor believes that electromagnetic, ra- electromagnetic rays from smartphones and tablets speed up the check this out aging process in our skin, including causing wrinkles and brown spots. The results are quite alarming. Uh, this particular dermatologist, Sarah Cheney, says, "I get a lot of bloggers and patients who take selfies every day, coming to me and complaining about the issue, and it's an issue which seems to be getting worse." The blue rays from smartphones, which we knew were taking that was th- those blue rays, they were keeping us awake. Well, guess what? Now they're doing. Uh, more damage to us than sunshine. So she says, I would urge youngsters in particular to be careful. Uh, this, this other news article from ABC6 in Los Angeles, an orthopedic surgeon says, doctors seeing rise in patients with, quote, selfie wrist, selfie wrist. So this is a thing now, selfie wrist. <laughs> and uh, uh, patients are complaining, of pain in the wrist and tingling in the fingers. It's a form of carpal tunnel because of what happens when you take a, the, the hyperflexion, hyperflex hyperflexion, whatever that word is, of the wrist. It appears to cause median nerve neuritis, which basically is the nerve becoming inflamed and angry. Dr. Levi Harrison says it happens when people constantly turn their wrists inward. So we all know that little the selfie You know, snap kind of thing. When you turn your wrist, it uh, is is going to cause some form of uh, nerve damage. Wow, that's crazy! More than 250 people have died while (laughs) trying to take selfies. The research uh, from All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi found 259 people died worldwide. While attempting to take a selfie between October 2011 and 2017, findings were published in the Journal of Family Medicine and Primary Care. That's from CNBC.com. Selfies can kill you, friend. Selfies can kill. You You know what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 2? It says, but understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. And so Paul is warning young Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. He's saying, look, Tim, got bad news for you. In the last days, it's going to get hard. It's going to be hard to be a Christian, hard to be a person. And then he unpacks what that means in verse 2. He says, for people will be lovers of self. Mm. Hello. How many know you're only three letters away in the word self from selfie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, two letters away. What was I thinking? <laughs> selfies, there we go. Three letters, I-E-S. Selfies can kill you. Well, selfies is a problem. It's this problem with the human condition. I don't know what it is. We all just love ourselves. There's a lot of people, you know, do you guys know anyone It takes too many selfies? Just wondering. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're not looking at the screen. You see on the screen, there's a selfie picture. That's me. I took a selfie right before the podcast of recording here in the studio. So there you go. Can we get that full screen, Michael, just for effect? Because I, you know, just the YouTube audience, I know they want to see that. There we go. And you'll notice that I have the duck face. So just for you, deep end audience, I took the risk and gave you a selfie. Nobody's laughing. (laughs) Nonetheless. Anyway, another study found out in in 2017 55% of plastic facial surgeons, uh, surgeons who perform plastic surgery on the face, reported their patients requesting procedures for the primary purpose of wanting to look better in selfies. That's from the dermatologist.com. Whoa. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. I, uh, <laughs> I thought it was a problem just because it's ridiculous, especially the duck face photos. I didn't realize it was a deadly problem. So this is why, guys, you tune into the Deep End podcast right here for breaking news articles that the fake news media won't tell you. (laughs) Things that you won't find on Fox News or CNN. All right. We give you the real truth. Uh, Basically, what it comes down to is uh, the problem is the human condition. We just are in love with ourselves. What was the original temptation to Adam and Eve? The original temptation was not to commit adultery or steal or lie or murder. The original temptation was what? Be like God. Be like God. Make yourself better. And that's the original temptation that Eve and Adam fell for. And ever since then, we have been following their example by nature uh, in many multitudes of ways. The Bible has a lot of laws, a lot of laws about how to live and how not to live. And the reason why all those laws are really just subsets of the main law, which is put God first in your life. The first law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second law is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so you've got to see that this problem that we have with selfies is just really just another subset problem of the human condition. We are born this way. As Lady Gaga famously said, we are born to love ourselves. There is no child in the world whose first response to the, to the moment that you take his toys away, uh, is, oh good, please give it to another child who needs it. Uh, <laughs> the natural inclination of every child when you take away their toy is, mine, me, give me, I want, okay? That's the love of self. Love of self, Old, uh, Old Testament, New Testament have this in common. What destroys cultures, what destroys people, what destroys communities is the love of self. So this is why you tune in the deep end because here we tell you how the Bible applies to real life. Don't take so many selfies, for heaven's sakes. Nobody really loves you that much, and you shouldn't love you that much. Uh, and you know, the other thing that bugs me with selfies is the is the um, the uh, photoshopped kind of. Uh, what, what do they do now? Some cell phones do this, where they f- fix your blemishes automatically. Is everybody aware of this? I think it's the Samsung phone. The Samsung has a beauty setting, and when you Purchase the Samsung phone, it's already set to the maximum level, like the default setting is the maximum level of the beauty setting, which wipes away all your blemishes. I think, oh, it's Snapchat. Snapchat is the, um, the, the picture sharing app, right? I don't have Snapchat. But yeah. you guys have Snapchat, yes? So I got a guy in our church. He sent me a selfie of himself with a fake beard because he wanted to look like me. And then I and I sent a response back, and I said, you look like a toddler with a beard. Because all the blemishes on his face, all the wrinkles were completely gone. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, that's not even you. That's not even... And I so I text back. I said, did you have the beauty setting on? And he's like, no. And I said... I'm pretty sure you did, because I showed the picture (laughs) to, like, four other people, and uh, they're all like, no, that's not what he looks like. He's got, like, a mole here. He's got wrinkles over here. I don't know what it was. Anyway, this person shall remain unnamed. I'll I'll just... I'll just let you know that he uh, works at Waters Church. Uh, but that's it. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an interesting thing. But this is the culture in which we live, the self-love culture. we got to watch out for this. Christians, we got to watch out for this. This is, this is invading the church. Now today, why am I sharing that news? Because it's going to apply to where we go in our study of what we're doing today. Again, so let's go into the book of Revelation. All right, the book of Revelation applies to what we're talking about with selfies killing you. And the reason why is because, as we've said now for many weeks in a row, as we are in this interlude portion between the judgments of the early chapters of Revelation, the two judgments of the um, seals, the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments, and then there's an interlude, and then there's the seven bowl judgments. So today we're in the last chapter of the interlude. No, No, sorry, second to last chapter of the interlude. We're in Revelation chapter 14. But I said that during this interlude, what Revelation is going to do is it's going to talk about the four forces that are going to come against you as a Christian. These are the four forces that are going to come against you as a Christian. So two weeks back, we took on um, Satan, and we talked about your spiritual enemy, Satan. Uh, I call him the originator or the progenitor of false doctrines or false beliefs about God. Second and third problems or forces that come against a Christian in this generation is what we talked about last week—the uh, dictator beast, or the the political unifying political leader, the beast and then there's another beast, but we call him also the false prophet. This is an alluring spiritual leader of the age. And uh, last week's episode, I really hope that you listened to it. Uh, It was up late on our YouTube page. Sorry for that. We're not going to let that happen again, but make sure that you check it out if you haven't already watched that. I know that that one was imperative for you to hear because of the heightened tension around politics in our generation, the heightened tension around politics. Well, there's another tension. There's another alluring force, a captivating force that comes against the Christian in today's generation. And that's number four. So last week, we dealt with two and three, the beast and the false prophet, the political and spiritual forces of the world, these, these kind of like false Christianities, if you will. They don't say they're Christian uh, Christian by any means, but they become almost politically and spiritually Uh, powerful in people's lives. They really divide us. They really cause a lot of problems, a lot of friction for people. Today, we're talking about this last force, the fourth force on the list, and that's Babylon. And Babylon, I call it here, the corrupting whore of indulgence and luxury. And the reason why is because the scriptures call her um, a corrupting whore. And it's a picture, right? And, And you've got to realize how Revelation writes in these pictures, in these symbols. The Church is the pure virgin bride of Jesus. Um, It doesn't mean that you have to be a virgin to be a Christian. It means that through Christ's blood and sacrifice, you are brought to purity before God the Father. He wipes away your sins and your impurity and your indecency. Well, the opposite of purity and virginity is harlotry. It's the whore of Babylon. So you have a picture here in Revelation of there's another force. If Christ's church is called to be his pure virgin bride, undefiled, unspoiled, well, guess what? The force that's going to come against her is the harlotry of the age, this, this corrupting whore of Babylon. And there is a, there is a serious... Uh, heavy influence of Babylon in our age. So, when I talk about Babylon, please note that I'm not talking about a geographical location, and Revelation's not talking about a geographical location. I know that in the book of Daniel, it's a geographical location, but that Babylon is long gone. That Babylon is basically like dust right now. So, We're not talking about geography, but we are talking about a spiritual reality. And so these pictures mean something for us. And you've got to be aware that this is going to be a struggle for you as a Christian because the corrupting whore will come for you and will be pervasive, just like the religious and uh, spiritual political climate will become captivating to you. So be on your guard. So I call this episode Babylon and the Harvest because... Out of Babylon comes Christ's pure bride. I want you to hear me say that again. Out of Babylon, out of the corrupted whore, comes Christ's pure bride. And we see this later on in the book of Revelation. But before we get to that, we have to see what Babylon is all about. So when we get to Revelation chapter 14, we need to look at where we are in the book of Revelation. And... Let's just back up for a minute, because at the end of chapter 13, things were bleak, and I mean bleak. Uh, The beast looks like it's gonna win, uh, the mark makes it the mark of the beast makes it impossible for people to live on the earth. They can't buy, they can't sell, they can't start a business, they can't engage in commerce unless they have the mark of the beast. We talked about this last episode. And then it's like Revelation chapter 13 is that moment in all good movies where you really think that there's no chance they're getting out of this. Uh, and I don't know, it is um, very apropos to this time, if you're watching this episode live or shortly after we were Recorded live. I don't know if anybody in here or watching have you seen Avengers Endgame? Avengers Endgame. Anybody? I haven't seen it yet.
1: Does anybody want to see it? Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah, I saw it. It's it's really great. Uh, it's actually fantastic. I'm gonna tell you, you gotta go see it because it's. I I mean, I'm a moderate Marvel fan. I was always a DC fan growing up. I'm a Marvel fan now. Like now, it's like forget DC. It's just it's just been. It's just been well done. Anyway, they really close it off really good. But I only say that to say this that at the end of, you've seen Infinity War then, people in the audience, uh, in, the, uh, in the studio, yeah. yeah. Infinity War, where it ends with Thanos looking like he won, right? How are they going to get out of this mess? Half the population is dead. Uh, half the superheroes are gone. Everybody's like, you know, disintegrated into the little dust particles and all that kind of stuff. Poor Ant Man. Did you see the end of Ant Man and Wasp? Ant Man stuck in the quantum realm. Like, that's depressing. You know, and his father-in-law there can't even get him out because he disintegrated. Well, anyway, that's neither here nor there. What I'm trying to tell you is, Revelation chapter 13 is like the end of Infinity War. How are they going to get out of this? Revelation chapter 14 is not so fast. Not so fast. There's a plan, and I won't ruin Endgame for you because I care. Uh, Yeah, Uh, (laughs) but it's like that moment. Revelation 13 is like that moment where you get to the that moment in the movie where you think there's just no way they're going to get out, and Revelation chapter 14 is not so fast. Uh, God has a plan, and there's a plan to undo the, be- the devil's best shot. Now, you have to realize that this is how the Bible works from Genesis to Revelation. This is how it's been working since Joseph uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 37 to 50. And you've got to realize this This is like when you look at the life of Joseph, it's like a picture for all the things that God is going to do going forward. And everything that happens to Joseph, who is a type of Christ, you know, the beloved son of the father who reports on his brothers and then is hated by his brothers, rejected by his brothers, cast into a pit by his brothers, this is a type of Christ. And then he has a resurrection moment uh, shortly thereafter. But you have to see that the life of Joseph is kind of like... The, um, the the foundation for all the stories and all the narratives of the Bible going forward, ultimately culminating in the story of Christ. And here's what you see in the life of Joseph is that everything keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse for this guy. And just when you think it can't get any worse, like when he left in the prison and he's helped out the two guys by interpreting their dreams and one of them gets killed and the other one goes back to the uh, potter, uh, the pharaoh's Pharaoh's palace, but he forgets about Joseph in prison. You almost think, "Oh my gosh, it's the end of Infinity War." This guy, there's no chance. But there was a plan, and in one day, the in one day, Joseph goes from the prison to the palace. Well, likewise, Egypt uh, in Israel. Oh, sorry, Israel coming out of Egypt. They come out of Egypt. After the, uh, the death angel, and then they go into the wilderness, but they hit the Red Sea, and they can't move any for- farther forward, and then you see Pharaoh's encroaching armies, and they're coming up behind them, and it looks like they're between a rock and a hard place, and they can't get out of that, and it looks like, you know, Infinity War, There's the bad guy's about to win, but God, what does God do? He opens the sea and in one night, now, now, so in Joseph's day, is one day. He goes from the palace, I mean, from the prison to the palace. Well, in Israel's uh, situation, it was one night. They travel all night through the Red Sea, and in one night, they are freed completely and the bad guy doesn't win and God's plan prevails. Well, this all culminates actually in Jesus, right? Because Jesus gets handed over to the Gentiles, the, the Romans and the religious leaders, the Jews, and they conspire together to put him to death and he's buried and it looks like it's over. His disciples fled. Judas betrayed him. Peter denies him. Everything looks horrible. It's dark. The world is dark. Evil seems to have won. Infinity war. The end, right? That's it. Not so fast. There's a resurrection coming. I love the old saying, the old preacher saying, It's Friday, but Sundays a coming. It's Friday, but some Sundays a coming. Well, where are you in your life? You might be in Friday, but this is how our God works. Sundays coming. Sundays a coming. That's how you gotta say it. Preacher style. Sunday's a coming. And so we gotta look at Revelation chapter 14 as though it looks like the enemy is gonna win, not so fast, God specializes in dire situations and that is a word for somebody God specializes in your dire situation. Maybe your marriage is in dire straits. Maybe your child is in dire straits. Maybe you feel like there's just no hope in whatever you're hoping for. And it looks like instead of getting better, it's getting worse. And what's worse for you, and some of you need to hear this, what's worse for you is it seems like you've been doing what you should be doing, and it seems like God isn't living up to what He should be doing, and so you're tempted to check out here or give up or fall to pieces. And the word from God to you today is, No, he specializes in dire situations. He specializes in taking all that the enemy tries to throw at his church, at his people, and in, and listen, friend, in one day or in one night, it may be a day, it may be a night, but 24 hours. God can do amazing things in 24 hours. And so you got to put your hope in that. You got to believe that. Because if you don't, you drive yourself crazy. So, Revelation chapter 13, the beast, the mark, the nations, all everybody's deceived, everybody's following, everybody's... It looks like the devil and Satan and his beast and false prophet, they're winning. Well, look at this. Very first verse of Revelation chapter 14. Look at this. Then I looked, verse 1. Then I looked, John says, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Oh, I love the language. Oh, love it. And with him... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I love this because right when you think it's over for the church, nope, guess what? The 144,000 suddenly show up. Oh, gosh, I so I so want to spoil endgame for you here, but I can't. Okay, I'm sorry. i got to move on. So they just, they, they suddenly show up on Mount Zion with the lamb. And I just want to, do a real quick run-through of the four views of Revelation. And I promise you, I think we're going put it, to put it to bed after this episode because at this point, we, we kind of get the drift and we're going to move on into what does Revelation teach us. Well, the historicist says that this moment is the beginning of the Reformation, like the 144,000 of the people that th- from the Reformation are going to go out and evangelize the world. And yes, Christian evangelism from 1500 onward. Uh, has been explosive, most notably in the last 100 years. The Preterist sees the 144,000 here as the Jews who left uh, Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem, went into the nations, preached the gospel, and won Gentiles uh, to Christ all over the world, and that did happen. The futurist sees the 144,000 here as the Jews who are converted during the tribulation, and then they become the evangel- the worldwide evangelists who go to the nations and tell the nations about Christ before His second coming. So before, between the rapture and the final second coming of Jesus, uh, these are the Jews who convert the nations, the 145,000 Jews convert the nations to Christ. Um, for the spiritualist, again, we've talked about the spiritualist. It's just, you know, taking like all the views and saying, this is what's going to happen. Uh, God has his number. Um, a really cool thing here is Revelation chapter 7 is where the 144,000 first appear. Well, here in Revelation chapter 14, after, listen to this, after the seven seal judgments, after the trumpet seal judgment, after the trumpet judgments, and after the beast and the false prophet and Satan and the dragon and all that trouble, guess what? There's still 144,000. So the hope is that Jesus is not going to lose one of his, not one of his own. There's 144,000 before the judgments of Christ, before the seals and trumpets and the false prophets and the beast and the dragon. And guess what? After all that mess, after all that, after, after what looks like the end of the world, infinity war, climates, uh, credits roll, yeah, guess what? Good news. Christ has not lost one. 144,000 before, 144,000 now. And here's what you take to the bank, Christian. Christ won't lose you. Christ won't lose you. If you are one of His, if you place your faith in Him, I know you'll have your ups and downs. I know you'll have your struggles. I know you won't be perfect this side of heaven. I get it. We all understand that, right? Uh, If anyone says he is without sin, he deceives himself. 1 John chapter 1 says that. But you have to realize that there is someone holding on to you. It's not are you holding on to Christ. It is Christ is holding on to you, and He will not lose you. I love that. I love the fact that Satan cannot take you out of God's hands. Tribulation or trouble cannot take you out of God's hands. And guess what? That spiritual, religious, political climate stuff that we're all like in the full throes of right now—that can't take you out of God's hands. And likewise, Babylon, the the corrupting whore of indulgence and luxury, in our in our present age, cannot take you out of God's hands. John 6 39 says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, this is his will, that I should lose nothing or none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. If Christ got you, Christ will not lose you. And so the Bible says here in verse one that they have the name of the lamb and the name of the father written on their foreheads. Now remember, and this is very interesting, that those who follow and worship the beast have his mark where? On their hands and foreheads. But in this chapter, for the 144,000, it just says that they have his name written on their foreheads, not their hands. Well, why? Here's why. Because when you follow the beast, you are defined by how you think and what you do. The hand is is a symbol, biblical symbol for your deeds. The forehead, the head is a symbol for how you think, okay? Well, guess what? If you follow the beast, your life is defined by what you think and what you do. If you come to Christ, your life is defined no longer by what you do, but by what you think, what you believe. And there's no need for the mark on the hand. Why? Do you know why? Because Christ has taken your deeds. He has taken your bad deeds, and he has washed them away. Hallelujah. You are no longer defined by what you did wrong. You are no longer defined by your mistakes of your past. You are no longer defined by how you mistreated somebody, how you rebelled against your parents, how you went astray during your 20s and into your 30s and all that kind of stuff. You're not defined by that anymore if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And your name, and I'm sorry, and your father's name is written on your forehead. He knows who you are, and he's got you identified. He's got you counted. Uh, he's got you counted in his number, uh, and so there's a real scriptural backing to what I'm saying to you because Isaiah 49 verse 16 says this: God says about His people, "Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of My hands." I have engraved you, God says, on the palms of my hands. Now think about this. What does Christ come to do? 800 years after Isaiah writes this, he comes and he spreads out his hands on a cross, and where do they put the nails? Right in the palm, right in the palm of his hands. That's, that's his engravement right here is the fact that he went to the cross for you, to bring you back to God, to give you uh, reconciliation with the Father and to put you in the family and then protect you and keep you. Now, I say all that to say, that doesn't mean you can just live ignorant of the forces around you. Okay, Christian, you got to fight the good fight. we got to stand strong. We have to believe and trust and follow and reject the worldly principles. And so that's where we pick this up here in Revelation chapter 14. So verse 2 says this, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song. Listen to this. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, first off, they're singing in heaven with the Lamb, and they're singing a song that only they know. What's all that about? Well, it's very simple. Language, uh, uh, Singing music is a language. Music is a language. You know the church fights about music, about, you know, it's always about music. I've been in church my whole life. Look, I remember when, when drums were introduced to the church, everybody flipped out. Oh, you're bringing the devil's music into the church. And then it was uh, acoustic guitars. Oh, the acoustic guitars. And then before you knew it, we had the electric guitars. And then we really lost ourselves, right? That was it. That was the end. The devil was fully in charge. Ah, it's a bunch of nonsense. Look, there was a time when there was harpsichords leading the church in worship, and people freaked out about the piano. And before the harpsichord, it was an organ. So there's always been arguments about music in the church. Well, the reason why, and I'm going to basically really simplify this for you the reason why is because music is a language and it's usually a generational language it's usually a generational language like mom and dad always hate the kids music and their those kids will one day grow up and hate their kids music i mean it's just it's just the fact right and then someday you'll get old enough and you will realize hey i can appreciate that music it's different it might not be my style it might not be my language but it's good well, music is a language, and you have to realize this. This is what music is for the church. Music is a language. It's a language that helps you learn how to deal with what's going on inside of you. It really is. Um, for instance, when you, single people, when you uh, suffer a devastating breakup, who, who do you listen to? You know who you listen You listen to Adele, okay? Adele is the breakup queen. Come on. Am I right, Michael? Come on. She's the breakup queen. Yeah. She's always singing about how our heart's broken. It's like, how many times can you heart Oh, by the way, she just got uh, her heart dumped again. So I'm looking forward to the next Adele next album. album. Yeah, yeah. she's going to be on fire, man. She's going to be on fire. She, every time she breaks up. I swear, she breaks up with a guy just to get a good album out of it. I don't know. Maybe that's what happens. But anyway. Music helps you relate to what you're going through on your inside. So you listen to certain songs when you suffer a breakup or when you fall in love for the first time, when you really like fall in love, and I hate the term fall in love, but when you really fall for someone, right, and you turn on the radio and suddenly the songs, oh my gosh, this makes sense to me. Like I've listened to this song a hundred times before, but now it makes sense to me. Well, music is a language. It helps you deal with what's going on on the inside. Well, guess what, church? The singing of God's people is a language. It helps us deal, helps us, I don't want to say deal, but it helps us kind of harmonize what's inside of us with what's outside of us, and so we sing a song that the world can't learn, and this is the beauty of being part of the church. Like, we sing about things like the precious blood of the lamb. Now, a non-Christian listens to that and says, what? Like, blood is not precious. Blood is gross. No, not the blood of Jesus. is precious to those who are bought By the blood. We sing about things like the empty grave. We sing about the cross, which today is normal to sing about the cross, but think about it the cross was a symbol, an instrument of public humiliation and execution in the Roman world. We sing about it like it's the symbol of amazing awe and wonder. Why? Because it's changed our heart. It's done something inside of us. It's changed us. It's made us think about we're new people. And so music about that helps us resonate or... Uh, you know, um, you know, relate what's inside of us to what's outside of us, and that is the beauty of music. But this is what it's saying here: is that these people have been redeemed, and no one's taking them out of God's hands. He's not losing any of them. Jesus is not losing anybody. So what do we do? We sing a song of celebration. Others can't understand the song. Hey Christians! Hey Christians! Listen. Pay attention real close. Stop expecting the world to think that, the, stop expecting the world to get what you believe. Like, stop <laughs> Stop expecting non-Christians to understand your love for Jesus. It won't happen. It won't happen. This is an internal change that took place in you by God's grace and sing about it. Get with God's people and rejoice with them, but don't expect non-believers to understand it. Now, be a witness to them, love them, serve them, bless them, love your neighbors, love yourself, no matter what their belief all is, but you got a song that joins you with the generation that belongs to Jesus. And that's the beauty of this verse. So let's go on. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. So this is the 144,000. And it said this about them before, by the way, in chapter seven. But it says, it's these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay. Lot of points to be said about the church that Jesus will not lose. And this is how you can identify: am I part of that we Well, check this out. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. Well, basically what that's saying is in Old Testament times, men who went out to war did not go out to war if they had been recently married or if they uh, were sexually um, active. Uh, They had to keep themselves from women. In fact, David's men were known for keeping themselves from women. He actually says that about them uh, when he goes to uh, the house of the priest there, I think in 1 Samuel chapter 14 or somewhere around there. Anyway, um, these... This is an idea of going out to war. And if you're going out to war, if you're fighting a battle, you don't have time to defile yourself with these, these lusts of the flesh. So Christians, um, they grow ever increasingly hateful of the desires of the flesh. Why? Because they want to fight a good battle in the Lord. So that's number one. Number two, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Second half of verse four. Um Christians, the uh, 144,000, grow in doing what Christ does. They want to serve and please Him. They want to follow His example. Okay, they want to do what Jesus does. They want to live like Jesus lived. That's what the 144,000 are. And then it says, um, no lie was found in their mouth. Well, this just speaks of perfection and sanctification, the the perfecting work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that it has to affect how you speak, friend. I really do. Like, your Christianity uh, should lead to a transformation in your speech. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be blameless in what you say, but as the Holy Spirit works on you, you're going to grow deeper and deeper into Christ, which will shape the words of your mouth. Now, listen— James says in James chapter 3 that a perfect man is someone who can bridle his tongue. Think about it. Uh, James almost says it like this, like the last line of defense in the flesh is your tongue. If you can get a hold of that, you're a perfect man. You're perfect. You're done. You're finished. Well, these 144,000 who God has sealed, uh, it's like envisioning their ultimate end. Christ is going to bring you to completion, and he's not going to stop until you're there. Uh, and so your mouth is going to change. Your words are going to change. Your your priorities in life are going to change. And that's who the army of the Lord is. That's who the 144,000 are. Okay, that's the 144,000. Let's take a look now. There's three angelic uh, messengers, and then we're going to get into Babylon because this is very cool. Verse 6, angel number 1. It says this, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay, a couple of things about this angel so that we can understand what's happening here. Uh, he's flying directly overhead. Now that I believe is saying it's, it's directly overhead, which means that it is visible by all people. That's how I interpret that. Secondly, he's preaching an eternal gospel. And then that gospel is going to every tribe and nation. And he's saying to the people, fear God, for his judgment has come. Fear God for his judgment is come. As God brings judgment upon the world, turn to God. So the historicist looks at this. Again, the four views. And again, I think this is the last time we're going to talk about the four views, but let's just let me just unpack something for you. The historicist sees this as the great awakenings and the revivals that transpired after the Reformation. So you have the Reformation in the 1500s, you have uh, Calvin in the 1600s, and the Bible becoming really, like, um, mass-produced in the 1600s. And then you have, in this country, in America, the First Great Awakening in the 1700s, you have the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, and you have the gospel spreading like wildfire from the United States through these Great Awakenings. And this is how the historicist relates this to Revelation chapter 14. This is the mass explosion of worldwide evangelism through the Holy Spirit revivals of the 1700s and 1800s. You think about D.L. Moody, who was kind of a product of the 1800 revival movements, and he traveled like 100 million miles across the face of the earth, went to over, I think, 30 countries in the 1800s, preached to millions of people, and did not fly once. Like, did not travel on an airplane. This is before airplanes. It was before cars, for heaven's sakes, and traveled all over the world. Uh, that's an amazing statistic. Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 14. He said, in the gospel, of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, before Jesus comes back, there's got to be worldwide explosion of evangelism. Guess what? We've seen that. We've seen that. Like, before that, this before the 1800s, before the 1700s, we didn't see it. Now we do see. The gospel today is going into nations that has been, it's been unheard of uh, for thousands of years. And so what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and what Revelation chapter 14 says is actually happening. Now, there's a revival that a lot of biblical scholars don't like to talk about, but I love to talk about it because I'm a fruit of this revival. I call it. It's not. I don't call it, but it's called the Pentecostal revival of the 1900s. In 1906, uh, starting in a little church in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, where uh, people spoke in tongues and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and and that. Revival spread like wildfire across the entire United States. By the way, that product, the the fruits of that revival, this is interesting, people don't know this, the fruits of that revival were uh, a Bible college teacher, white guy, who left his door open, this is in the time of uh, segregation, this is in Texas, left his door open so that a black man named William Seymour could listen in on his lectures about the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Before segregation was ended, when black men were not allowed in white men's schools, this guy leaves his door open so that this black man can hear the gospel. Well, that William Seymour travels to L.A. and starts the Azusa Street Revival. And in its its infancy, the the Azusa Street Church was a uh, multi-ethnic church. It was a glorious representation of what God came to do through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts chapter 2. Well, that revival spread across the nation, and I know it spread across the nation because I received the touch of that revival as a young teenage boy in New Hampshire, and it changed my life. It made me love Jesus. It changed everything about it. If you have not had an experience like that in the Holy Spirit, my advice to you is pray that God gives you one Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of arguments in the church where we have time to argue about this stuff, whether it's called baptism of the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, fullness of the Holy Spirit, or whatever. I don't care what you call it. Just ask God for it, because it will change your life. It will empower your witness. It will empower your walk. And by the way, the Pentecostal revival, the charismatic revival of the 1900s, I know it's got a lot of excesses out there. It's got a lot of crazies. I've seen some of the crazies. Ignore the crazies. Look at the fruit. The Pentecostal church has spread around the world. It has sent hundreds of thousands of missionaries around the world. And today, Brazil, right now, also experiencing a Pentecostal revival of its own. And it is exploding in Christian growth. The Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, chapter 2, comes into the church to bring the gospel to the nations. Well, guess what? At the end days, in the last days, And what we are seeing right now, the Holy Spirit is filling the church anew and afresh so that the gospel can go around the world and even through the internet to you where you are right now. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. And this was already talked about in Revelation chapter 14. I think that's pretty cool. So verse 8, another angel, this is the second angel, another angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. There it is. First messenger to Babylon in Revelation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon is a picture. It's a picture of a world empire that will mass produce uh, immorality and idolatry to the other nations. Now, Again, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Babylon was a physical place, and we know this historically as well. It was led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He was King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the king of the world. Uh, Well before Leonardo DiCaprio said it on the bow of the Titanic... Nebuchadnezzar said it in his gardens, okay? And he said, I am Nebuchadnezzar. I've made all these things and I'm the king of the world and God struck him with insanity immediately and he was driven out into the wilderness and lived like a wild animal for several years. Eventually, he repented and came back to the God of heaven and earth and worshiped the God of heaven and earth. But we have to realize that the kingdom that he led, Babylon, is a picture for us in the New Testament. Uh, the Jews, Jewish people, uh, in Jesus' day, saw Rome as Babylon. So there's... And by the way, the, the, the empires go like this. Babylon is conquered by the uh, Medes. The Medes are conquered by the Persians. The Persians are conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks are conquered by the Romans. That's how it goes, right? So Jewish people saw Rome as like new Babylon, and it's a picture, and, and you, got to, you have to see it this way because there's always a Babylon in the world. There's always a world empire that is um, mass-producing and dispensing its immorality and its idolatry to the nations around it. So my question to you is this, who is Babylon today? And I have bad news for you, (laughs) because I think that Babylon is none other than our beloved United States of America. I'm sorry to say this, but I really do believe this. And you say, well, why? Verse 8, let me read it again. Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Ask yourself honestly, what nation on earth compares to America when it comes to this obsession with sexual morality? There is no other nation. And the facts and the statistics bear this out. Now, America is also the lone superpower in the world. And that further perpetuates the idea that currently America is Babylon. So you and I, dear Christians living in America, (laughs) are presently in Babylon. That's the bad news. Um, Nowhere did this become more clear to me than a couple of weeks ago uh, during February and March, I had the wonderful privilege of going on two missions trips, one to Guatemala for a week, and then I went to Uganda and Kenya for a week. And they were, it was one week away, one week back, one week away, and then I came back. So it was a three-week period for me, but one week in the middle in America. I came back from Kenya and Uganda, and i I got to say, it had never hit me like this before, but I came back, and I just, all of a sudden, I just saw sex everywhere. And I was like, And it's not like it was anything new. It was just almost like I had forgotten. Oh, yeah, this is what you see in America. You see sex everywhere. You see sexual imagery everywhere. It sells everything. And I think it was as soon as I got off the plane in Boston, and my wife and I were walking there, and I just saw, like, scantily clad women selling, you know, everything. uh, Right there in the airport. Not physically really there, but on pictures and in TV screens. And it it really hit me for the first time in my life that, oh my gosh, this is like cultural for us. Like we're so blind to it because it's everywhere. It's become white noise for us as Americans. Now, I say this because the statistics back me up. There is a non-Christian group that is trying to end pornography. Now, how bad is it? How bad is it getting when even non-Christians are starting to say, oh, this is bad. (laughs) Pornography is bad. Yes, it is. It's demoralizing. It's destructive. Fightthenewdrug.org, non-Christian organization dedicated to the abolition, is that the word? Yeah, abolition, of pornography. Data reveals from their statistics that some 60% of the world's pornography sites around... 428 million pages. Just think about that number. Staggering. More than one per American are hosted in the United States. 60% of pornography is hosted in the United States. Second place country is like way down the list at 27%. So America, 60%. Second place country, 27%. It's the Netherlands, of course, Amsterdam. Right, third place is the UK with seven percent of the world's porn sites. Uh, you you got to realize that America is exporting more sexual immorality to the world than any other country by far. My point: America is Babylon. I know you don't like to hear, I know, oh no, I believe America, God raise, shed his grace on thee. I understand, I understand. And I, and I hope that God sheds it. We need it. We need his grace. Because we are messed up as a country. I'm just telling you, we are, we are obsessed with sex. Uh, my wife was watching a Netflix documentary. She watched it, I didn't watch it, but it was about the porn industry. And she saw this horrific documentary. Uh, girls as young as 18 getting into the porn industry in America by the thousands, every day. The average life expectancy in the porn industry for a young girl in our country is three weeks. You heard me right. I didn't misspeak. Three weeks. A successful, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, successful porn uh, career, if you will, is three years. So basically, the industry takes 18-year-old girls, chews them up for three weeks, spits them out. If they're good, they get three years. What is it? Why, why do they do it? Why? And, and by the way, my wife saw this documentary, and they they find these girls on Instagram. So this is why young ladies stop posting your selfies, because they find you on Instagram and then they friend you and then they like all your pictures, which is what you want, right? They want you want people to like the pictures, so they come. Oh, like, ooh, who's liking my picture? And then before you know it, they DM you. And they ask you to be part of a porn picture or a porn site or a porn this. And they offer you like, I don't know, $5,000 or $3,000. And you're like, oh, I'm a poor kid. I need to pay for college. And so maybe you go do it. It's just for money? Like, wait a second. My Bible says God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. My Bible says if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things that the pagans run after, he will dump into your lap. He will provide for you. Watch out for this. Watch out for this. So they go on Instagram and they recruit. They recruit by liking the photos, by following, by DMing. And these 18-year-old girls, and my wife said on the, on the, they were interviewing these girls, they love getting involved in this industry. They love to go after things. Why? Because they want be, to be loved. They want to be liked. They want to be celebrated. They want to be, I don't know, a sex object. Why? Because we are a highly sexualized country. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's all over the place. So Babylon, <laughs> America, the United States of Babylon, it really is. And we're seeing it uh, get worse and worse. Uh, Sociologists, another statistic. Sociologists at the University of Buffalo reviewed more than 1,000 Rolling Stone cover magazine images published over four decades. And they found that sexualized representations of both men and women have become more common over time. Listen to these statistics. In the 1960s, 11% of men and 44% of women on the covers of Rolling Stone magazine were sexualized. Guess what happens in the 2000s? In the 2000s, it goes from 11% to 17% for men. Not that big of an increase, but check this out. From 1960 to 2000, it goes from, 40, it goes from 44% of women to 83% of women. <laughs> Almost every picture of a woman on the Roman Rolling Stones magazine cover is a sexualized image of a woman. Now, we're, we're dealing today with body image issues. And this is a huge thing. I was actually in CVS drugstore the other day. There was a commercial about this uh, organization trying to fight against the sexualization, the photoshopping to perfection of these images in magazines because women who 99.9% of them do not have these photoshopped images of their bodies in reality really struggle with their identity, really struggle with their self-worth when they constantly see these women photoshopped to perfection and sexualized. Well, what does that do to a country? What does that do to a culture? It makes sex and sexualization an idol that we serve and we give ourselves to. This is why young girls go to college, go to school today, and they got to dress more scantily than ever before, more sexually than ever before. What is that? It's Babylon because they have been taught from birth in this country that the more sexualized they look, the more attractive and desirable and valuable they are. Oh, this is so horrible. This is where we live. This is Babylon, and we better wake up to it because it's seductive. Just like the politics are seductive and religious and almost hyper-spiritualized, so too sexuality can do the exact same thing. And it's getting crazy, by the way. Uh, I was given this article from TheInverse.com. You've heard of homosexuality. Now there's such a thing called (laughs) ecosexuality. Ecosexuality, where people in Nevada are marrying the earth. Oh, dear God, help us. Marrying the earth and having sexual acts with the earth. I don't even want to know how they do it. And uh, you don't come to the deep end to find those details. <laughs> but this was on the uh, inverse.com. Don't go look it up. It's weird. Um, th- and, th- and now this is also infiltrating the church. Oh, Dear Christians, please listen to me. Please listen. I, I don't know if you're going to listen. I'm going to say it, but I don't know if you're going to listen. It's infiltrating the church. We have this new form of Christianity that is okay and, in, and approving of adverse sexual practices, of immoral sexual practices. You have a guy running for the presidency of the United States. His name is Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And he's a gay man, married to a man. And he's running around the country saying how wonderful of a Christian he is. How Christianity is, is one of the most amazing things. He, he literally said this about his same-sex marriage. He said, it, his same-sex marriage, has made me a better man and moved me closer to God. My question is, what God? Because you better be aware that there is a false god in this world. We've already talked about him on this podcast. You know, the, the, a, a recent, um, a, a recently a, a gay valedictorian from BYU, this is a very Mormon institution, I think it's totally Mormon, he was a valedictorian, he got up to do his graduation speech. And in front of the whole audience, he took his valedictorian speech to talk about his feelings. And what does he say? I'm gay. Then the crowd applauds. Everybody's happy. He's getting love from Kristen Chinoweth, another actress, uh, quote-unquote Christian Hollywood celebrity who loves gay marriage and approves of it and celebrates it. He's getting all kinds of praise. What does he say? Why did I do it? They say, why did you do it? He said, what did he say? It felt right. Oh, the God of feelings. The God of feelings, the God of feel. Oh, this is what I feel. This is what I feel. This is my feel. my feelings suck. My feelings suck. I don't know about you, but my feelings suck. I mean, I just think I have to say it a little bit more firmly. The guy that you're watching right now, I'm just telling you, the things that I feel most of the time they suck. I need my feelings changed by my faith. I need my feelings changed by what I believe, what is true, what Jesus did for me. And if God and the gospel, if Christ is not changing how you feel maybe you're not serving Christ maybe you're serving a God of your own formation this is a fantastic quote from John Stone Street. quote, if your God never tells you to do anything you don't want to do your God is probably you if your God never tells you to do anything you don't want to do your God is probably you 2nd Timothy 3.1 people will be lovers of self you see how it all comes together you see how all. all comes together the selfie generation the self-love generation it hypersexualized generation whatever i feel is right why because i feel it well we don't do that with kids i've raised 3 children my kids i've seen them all do things that they felt like doing which were atrocious i don't want to embarrass them i won't go into details i have to correct them and tell them how to do things that they don't feel Do you know what it's called when you don't do things that you feel? It's called maturity. It's called growing up. It's called becoming an adult. Good Lord. When are we going to grow up? When are we going to become people with responsibilities who take ownership of the fact that not everything that we feel is right? Oh, this is just getting worse and worse. We are in Babylon, friend. Wake up. This is why we have to talk about these things. And I am tired of hearing the Christian preachers and the Christian music that's all over this culture that talks about our feelings. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about grace. They don't talk about righteousness. They don't talk about purity. Oh, it's feelings now. Like the gospel of feelings. We're doing. We're carrying water for the Christians who deny the Bible about sexuality. We're carrying water because we never ever confront. We never tell people truth. If a scripture is, like I did a marriage, I started a marriage series last week at our church, and, and people were shocked that I was so bored. I'm like, why are you shocked? I'm going to say what the Bible says. I'm going to say what the Bible says. I'm not expecting everybody to like what the Bible says. If I'm sharing a message that everybody likes, I'm probably not sharing what the Bible says. Luke chapter 6, verse 20 is like a heartbeat verse for me. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way they treated the false prophets who were before you. I'm not here to be a false prophet. I want to be a true prophet. That means confronting. Confronting what? Feelings. Your feelings suck. Grow up. It's time to start adulting. And learn that you live in Babylon, and Babylon will suck the life out of you. Anyway, moving on. Verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink, listen to this, of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Judgment comes to those who receive the mark of the beast and worship his image. Now notice this, that God's wrath is paralleled between this verse and the previous verse in verse 8 with the cup of Babylon's passions. Verse 8, what did it say? Babylon the Great made the nations drink the wine of what? Her passion of her sexual immorality. Well, verse 10, verse 9 says that God's wrath is a drink that is poured out. Verse 10 says God's wrath is a drink of wine that's poured out. Don't miss this. Sexual perversion from Babylon and God's wrath are both cups two verses away from each other, and they are poured out at the same time on the nations. Don't miss this. You have to realize what the Bible's saying here in Revelation chapter 14. Sexual immorality itself is a tool in God's hand to bring judgment upon the world. Sexual immorality itself. Don't you realize what this is, guys? Don't you realize what this is, this pervasive sexuality? What happens when you're sexually immoral? What happens when you step outside your marriage? Your your life falls apart. What happens when you have sex before marriage with somebody? There's no commitment. There's no promise. What happens? You get all emotionally messed up. All this is, all the research is out there. Uh, all the research is out there that talks about how we are programmed in our hormones for monogamy. We are programmed for it. There's a little chemical in our brain, serotonin, that uh, when we have sex with somebody, it releases. And it connects with other fibers and portions of our brain that help bond us to the person. Well, if you do that with a bunch of other people... You're chemically imbalancing yourself. Are you following this? There is a wrath that is poured out through sexual morality. I I just, I, I, I get strong about this because I'm watching our world I'm, and I don't mind the world doing it. Really, I don't. Like the world let the let the world be the world. The world's supposed to be the world. I'm not worried about the world. I'm worried about the Christians. I'm worried about the Christians, the people who are confessing Christians and you're listening to the nonsense, the delusion of Babylon coming into the church and no longer confronting sin and no longer standing for truth, but just kind of endorsing it. And being like the world and then thinking we can come to church and be the church. No, 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 no. Not the way it goes. Come out of Babylon, God says. Come out of Babylon. His anger is poured out through sexual morality. And then look at this last verse here in verse 10. just want to just show you this. The people who drink of the, of the passion of sexual morality and the wrath of God's anger are tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And then the next verse, look at this, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. little bit of hell described here, and I want you to notice that it's described as forever and ever. Yikes. There's another lie that's coming into the church, Okay. I know a popular uh, Christian, quote unquote, Christian author, speaker, Rob Bell, wrote a book a couple of years ago, Love Wins. Everybody's going to heaven. Before him, it was Carlton Pearson down in Oklahoma, uh, one of the disciples of Oral Roberts from Oral Roberts University. Everybody's going to heaven. Nope. Hell's real. Hell's real. That's why we do what we do at Waters Church. That's why we ask you to serve and be a part of our serve team and help us get the message out because hell is real and it's forever. And it's also, I don't know if you saw that, but in verse 10, in the presence of the Lamb, guess, guess who's in charge of hell? Jesus. Jesus is in charge of hell. No, Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan is cast into hell. Jesus rules in hell. And, and by the way, the reason why uh, they're suffering in us is because they are in the presence of the Lamb. Think about this picture. They're in the presence of purity and they're impure people. There is nothing more skin-crawling for impure people than to be in the presence of absolute purity and not repent. Do you see it? I hope you see it. Because we have this idea that Satan's in some cave somewhere in the middle of the earth, and he's got a pitchfork and a crown on his head and a a throne, and he's over there poking people in hell. That's not biblical. What's biblical is what you see here in Revelation chapter 14. Jesus, in his purity, burns with fire upon those who are impure. They can't stand to be in his presence. Somebody once said it like this. I love this statement. Uh, it's, It's just off the top of my head if I can remember this quote exactly. Heaven, I'm sorry, hell is living eternally in the presence of Jesus. I'm sorry, in the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is living eternally in the presence of God with a mediator. And the mediator is Christ. He's the one who stands between us. He's the one who takes our sins. Hallelujah. Verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, you know what? If you die for your faith, amen. If you die for your faith. That's why we can't be afraid to speak the truth. we gotta be, We got to be bold. we got to be bold to speak the truth in the church and say what's true and be hated. It's okay. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors. They're going to get, you got to get rest, trust me. I know it's a hard thing to be a follower of Jesus now. You're going to get rest eternally in the presence of Jesus. I know I'm going long, but i got to finish this. Verse 14. Then behold, I looked. A white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat in the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. There's a harvest that's going to happen right out of the city of Babylon, right out of the heart of America, right out of the heart of the world that's getting so corrupted by America's sexual indulgence. Right now, there's a harvest happening. People are coming out of Babylon, and they're getting washed in the blood of Jesus, and be, and they're being made pure virgins prepared for Christ. Beautiful. It's happening now. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ every single day in this world. Are you one of the Then it says in verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. As the world gets more and more secular and sexually progressive, and that's where we are, guess what's going to happen? Christ is going to amp up his, uh, his work to bring in the nations into his family. This is beautiful. It is infinity war and endgame. It it looks like it is hopeless, but guess what? Christ is going to win. He's going to pull out people from all the hopeless situations that sexual immorality and indulgence and passions and political fervency have left them high and dry. Christ is going to bring them in to his house. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is uh, the harvest, the harvest that God, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, when he said that the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. Uh, Matthew 13, there's this parable. The wheat and the tares grow together, and the servants come to the master, and the farmer, the owner of the land, and say, Hey, somebody sowed tares amongst your wheat. They, t- they sowed bad seed amongst your good seed. Should we pull them up? And, G- and, the, and, the, and the farmer says, No, 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 no. Don't do it because if you pull up the tares, you might pull up some of the wheat. Let both grow together. And then at at harvest time, here's what it says. Verse 41, Matthew 13. Then the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In their place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear it. There's going to be a final harvest. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 13. Revelation chapter 14 backs it up. And the important message for, there, for us is this. You've got to be aware Babylon is real. And it's going to ruin your life if you let it. And the only hope that you have is Christ. He's the one who saves you from this delusion. And if you're a Christian out there and you're offended because I dared talk about sexual immorality or homosexuality as sexually immoral or, or anything like that, and you've got the sacred cow issue in your mind, the sacred cow issue in your heart, like, no, you can't touch that. That's not right. That's not what the culture says anymore. I challenge you to wake up to what God's Word says. I challenge you to fight the good fight. I challenge you to check the Scriptures for yourself. Um, maybe, you have a, maybe you're struggling with other forms of sexual immorality. You're struggling with sex outside of marriage. You're struggling with pornography. You're struggling with all these other things, that these, these pervasive forces around. You need help. You need a deliverer. You need Christ. He's going to come in. He's going to change your heart. He's going to help you. He's going to walk you out of this. And he will bring you home. So, summary. Are you living in Babylon? If you're an American, you are. If you're into another country, I'm sorry for what America sends you. I'm really sorry. Believe me when I say that there are many Christians here who hate what we do for the world. Hate it. This, this, this exporting of sexual morality around the world. Number two, sexuality is becoming ground zero for Christian discipleship. It really is. It really is. Stand strong. Don't get, don't get defiled by the world. Um, thirdly, be willing to be different. Like, this is going to, you know, this is going gonna, gonna to challenge a lot of Christians to be different to stand apart. And then ultimately, four, time will prove your hope is true. What I mean by that is, as, as the word says here in Revelation chapter 14, that the sexual morality is also partnered with the wrath, the cup of God's wrath. It's poured out together. It's poured out together. Um, all the research, all the studies back up what I'm saying. You do these things outside of God's word and it hurts you. And if you do things the way God wants you to do them, it blesses you. Time will prove your hope is true. That's the podcast. I hope you stayed the whole time. I know I got impassioned, but the reason why is because it's a passionate subject for me, and I see it in our country. I see the world, and I'm here to help you. I want to help. I want to empower God's people to walk in God's ways. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I will see you next week for question and answers with my wife here on the Deep End Podcast. God bless you. See you next week on the Deep End.